Tonight's show is being brought to you by Five College Movers. Five College Movers, here's what I want to say about them. We've, this is the third episode that they've sponsored. And, you know, when I got into this, to this uh, sponsorship arrangement with them and we've been chatting or whatever, the backstory was funny because we used to kind of jokingly, like half jokingly, but kind of half bitingly, like chirp at each other. And I was like, you want to sponsor the show? And they were like, yeah. And I didn't even know if they were that serious. To their credit, the guys have, there have been great. And I got to give them this. Like the last show, I didn't even have to send them the bill. Like they just sent me the money. Like the show dropped and like I looked and the money was there. And it was like, that was fucking really nice. Like they, they, they so, and I want to say though, in all seriousness, if you need a mover, if you're traveling you know, from somewhere to UMass and moving back or you're leaving the area or wherever you are, a company that send that pays people right away tends, and I've dealt with some that don't, back in my freelance journalism days, you know, chasing that checks was sometimes was just absolutely brutal. But the point is that they paid right on time. And I think that speaks to the quality of the business. So it's just a certain dependability factor. And what do you need when you're moving? You want it to be hassle-free. You want it to be dependable. And they are fivecollegemovers.com, stress-free moving in the Pioneer Valley and beyond. Big friends of the show, big friends of UMass Athletics. Thanks again for sponsoring the show. And, you know, this is a small community. So relatively, I mean, there's a bunch of us out there, but support people that support UMass Athletics and that support people talking about UMass Athletics, i.e. Bennett, <laughs> me, and all the various friends of the pod. So uh, thanks again to Five College Movers, and uh, enjoy the show. UMass fans on your tweets, and make some noise for your podcaster. Well, can you believe what's going on in the Atlantic 10 today? Oh, I remember man. when Penn State was in the Atlantic 10. <laughs> and he rips him down, he puts him in his seat, and he looks at him and goes, that was fucking hilarious, but you really just got to shut up. I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to Olympia. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. My name is Curry Hicks Sage. I am live tonight in my apartment in New York City, joined as always or as frequently by actually, frankly, not in a while in terms of real time. Yeah, inter- uh, internet, <laughs> internet's kind of kept us apart. Uh, the great Bennett Carroll in our nation's capital, not with us tonight, the once and former co-host of this podcast who has a standing invitation to appear whenever he'd like, Andrew Callagy, a.k.a. A. Callagy for longtime listeners. He's in the greater Boston area. I actually did reach out to him prior to the episode. He said he doesn't know anything right now, but will have some strong opinions after the first couple of football games. So hopefully, if we still maintain interest in this football program after two games and in certain past years that has not been the case we will get cal back on the program speaking of maintaining interest in the football program i think i'm going to maintain it a little longer than usual because yesterday around midday the folklore hero and icon and meme of the umass twitter sphere 
the one, the only, the king, the sixth-year super senior, Randall West, longtime fourth-stringer, basketball player, came out of effectively nowhere to win the starting quarterback job for Friday night's game against Rutgers in the state of New Jersey where Randall West was born and raised. What a story. I could not be more. I don't think since I launched this podcast almost two years ago in almost 50 episodes that I've been this palpably to steal a John Rothstein word excited about a single occurrence to a UMass athlete. And yes, that includes hockey because while I was thrilled for the fans of hockey who'd suffered through it for so long, um, I, I was not until that point a particularly big hockey fan and Randall West, I feel like connected to on a psychic level because of the, uh, in the ways in which the fan base has embraced him at first, kind of ironically, if we're being honest, and now uh, earnestly, because it's really why college sports is great. I literally in the last uh, 36 hours have been getting back in the writing game, something I haven't done in a while, and I've written like 3,000 words, and I'm trying to get it somewhere published before Friday when the game drops because it's such a great story and I was like just you know you get a creative burst of energy every once in a while and this gave me like a just almost unparalleled creative high with respect to like all these things coming together and just the 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 feel-good story the morale of sort of the UMass Twitter world and Randall West and his family who Bennett and I sat next to at a game at George Mason uh, basketball game at George Mason uh, a year and a half ago and they were great people. That was that game where, like, that was the game, actually, in part inspired by Rand. That was the Randall West game. The Randall West game, but no, but that was the game that, even though UMass lost at the buzzer, that inspired me to believe that the next year's team would play with that kind of effort and win the Atlantic 10 title. That, of course, did not happen, but needless to say, Randall West gave us the hope that there was something – kind of brewing with respect to the culture change around the program. It did not exactly happen that way. And Randall West uh, was an afterthought with respect to Walt Bell taking over. Now he's playing. And I, and I said it in this piece I'm working on, like, I don't care if Randall West throws five interceptions on Friday night and I'll be there. When he comes out of that tunnel, if you're a serious UMass fan and you've been following the Randall West story over the last couple years there's just nothing like it I mean it's just an unbelievable moment and it's it's something I don't think I'll ever forget as a UMass fan it's it's hard to overstate I think if you're if you're someone who follows the program very casually and you're just like oh yeah like uh you know and there's a lot of people out there I think who maybe not people who listen to this program but you know people are like oh yeah some kid who's been there forever I guess he won the starting job and you know we'll see first year for Walt Bell and, and it just sort of you know move on to the Red Sox box score or whatever but if you're uh, someone who has engaged with the sort of diehard sphere of UMass fandom, there's something just just incredibly unique about this particular moment and the fact that he beat out, uh, you know, a guy who beat him out last year for the third string job 
and a guy that Walt Bell brought in, who's another Jersey kid, who we'll talk about tonight on our, on our interview with a, a Rutgers beat reporter, because uh, he's a because he, he he was a pretty big star in the high school scene in Andrew Andrew Brito. But whether this is a decoy by Walt Bell to to kind of throw off Rutgers because they weren't expecting this, I don't know. I don't care the fact that he will get a single series against his home state after all he's been through, a knee injury. He was recruited in 2013 by Charlie Molnar. Charlie fucking Molnar recruited the guy, and he signed in late July of 2013. That's three years before Donald Trump was elected. It's more than three years before Donald Trump was elected president. Is now finally getting a start. He didn't play a single down in 2018. He gray shirted in 2014, came to campus in 15, 2015 and red shirted. Then in 2016 and 2017, he uh, completed a pair, uh, played in a pair of games and completed, I think a total of three passes in that time did not play in 2018. No one could have foreseen this. It's an awesome story. Everyone who follows this program is is rooting for him and it doesn't matter what happens moving forward it's why fandom is great it's why college sports for all its insanity and bullshit and exploitation remains worth following and it's why umass athletics remain worth following despite the fact that people think doing so might be a little bit bizarre particularly given the fact that umass is by some accounts the worst division one FBS team in America right now. I think that's kind of a bit much, but this just is the perfect antidote to any negativity that we've perpetuated as a fan base or that the national media has perpetuated or that anyone who's ever had a smidgen of an opinion about UMass athletics over the last couple of years has perpetuated. Randall West is the perfect antidote. I cannot wait. Word is a Matt McCall will be there. He better be now because he was go out there saying Randall West, you know, I'm going to hold the sign saying he should start. I think he was saying that almost ironically in the same way that some of us were, but Randall, the best kid by all accounts, just quietly toiled away, toiled away, toiled away. And there's so many cliches that surround this kind of thing. At, it's almost unbelievable, literally almost unbelievable. It's, it's, it's just such a great story. And it makes the uh, opening game, it adds so much to it. You know, I've said on this program before with um, with Cal, I think, in the past that there's something about the lead up to, I said it on Twitter as well, that the lead up to college football season since UMass made the, joined the FBS is so much better than any sport. And I'm a basketball fan first. I, make, I, I have no, you know, I've never hidden that fact. But the prospect of playing a frankly beatable um, Big Ten team in the opener. And you add the Randall West storyline to that. You add the young, dynamic, new coach who, by all accounts, has injected new life and energy into the program. And there's just something about it that you can't beat. I mean, it's the end of the summer. For me especially, it's, it's a short jaunt from New York to Rutgers. There's a lot of us who are getting together. If you are coming to the game, definitely hit me up on Twitter. Um, Bennett, you're not coming up for it, are you? Unfortunately, I'm not able to take off. I have a wedding in New York Sunday, so I can't take off Friday, Saturday. Noted. Um, so, you know, it'll be it'll be a great experience no matter what happens. And of course, you know, it gives you that delusional hope that maybe just maybe Randall West will 
lead the team to a stunning victory. And as I've been saying for months now on Twitter, uh, effectively end the entire university uh, that is Rutgers uh, should that happen, because it would be a colossally devastating moment for a program that went 1-11 last year and desperately needs to get out of the gate in a good way this year. Uh, UMass is a prohibitive underdog, you know, loses a lot from last year, from last year's roster, new coach, a lot of question marks. And, and I think, you know, in many ways, our fan base is looking forward to 2020, but you just never know. That's why they play the games. Can't wait. See you there. Let's bring on our guest. Okay, at this time, it is our great pleasure to introduce tonight's guest from the... Well, you know, I actually was going to describe you, perhaps in romantic terms, as being from the Star Ledger. But these days, it feels like with advanced media, we just go by uh, the NJ.com advanced Correct. media empire. Like, what's the what's the ownership deal there? So it's, excuse me, it's NJ Advanced Media, which is basically corporate speak for the Star Ledger and NJ.com. Uh, and I usually just tell people I'm from NJ.com because I think as kind of the digital media age has evolved, most people are probably consuming my content on NJ.com. So it's usually just a catch-all NJ.com. It's quick, it's short, to the point. Okay, and for the, for the reference, for, or for uh, our, our listeners' reference point, NJ.com is sort of, I think it's owned by the same people as Mass Live, which is... Correct. Uh, yes. Okay. Who, uh, James, just so you have, a, this is a perfect segue to uh, con- contrasting our respective, pro- the programs that we follow. Mass Live no longer, as far as I know, has a full-time UMass beat writer. They, they got rid of him three, four, five years ago and have not hired a full-timer to replace him. So that gives you an indication as to... The uh, ways in which UMass football, in many ways, I think, struggles to gain the mm-hmm. sort of relevance that, let's say, Rutgers has. And in many ways, and I know you'll, this might surprise you, but in a certain sense, as much as I've been um, chirping about Rutgers this week, and because this is, of course, a uh, fan podcast and not a, a Big J journalist yes. podcast, um, <laughs> we... Uh, I have to say, Rutgers is in many ways an aspirational model for for UMass in terms of I think what the ten year plan is in many in many senses. And not to say we'll get to the Big Ten, but I think there are similarities, and I think there's a certain uh, belief that if Rutgers could do it, so could UMass. There's there's similar sleeping giant dynamics in in branding and marketing over the years, and just in fan lore more generally. So. Um, I, I have to say, in lead in you know the lead up to this week's game, I've been pretty impressed by the um, kind of robust Rutgers traditional media and digital media landscape. Talk to us a little bit about the the interest in the Garden State and maybe uh, you know whether or not it's a misconception that you know nobody cares about Rutgers football. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a misconception. I would say that what I've learned being on the Rutgers beat, and just to kind of hit on your point about UMass, uh, our columnist Steve Politi, you know, when I think every college 
fan base in America, in my opinion, to some extent, thinks that their local newspaper or their big outlet is like out to get them, and everybody else in the country has like f- loving, caring, docile media members that support the program. And I think like everyone just kind of does that in every college town. Like I went to the University of South Carolina. And everybody in Columbia hated the state newspaper, which is the, the main daily in Columbia, and was convinced that every every other team in the SEC, other, the other 11 schools at the time, aging myself a little bit, A&M and Missouri weren't, hadn't joined yet when I was in school, uh, they all had, you know, loving, caring media. And I think if you drove down to Athens, they would say that the AJC and the Athens Athens paper were out to get them, and the, the state was in the Gamecocks' back pocket. But anyway... Um, Steve always talks about how when he first was a columnist, I think he started around like 2005, Rutgers was very low on the totem pole at NJ.com in terms of what they what they covered. They had a full-time beat reporter, and, and they'd have a sidebar guy, and obviously the columnists would go to the games, but you know, Giants, Jets, Yankees, Mets, even the Knicks, the Rangers, the Devils were all kind of above Rutgers. Fast forward to here we are now, I would say, not to toot up my own horn, but if you look at this, obviously we don't cover all of those teams I just mentioned anymore. I would say Rutgers has become basically on par with the, the Giants and the Yankees in terms of our readership. I mean, my partner Keith Sarge and I, like two full-time beat reporters on Rutgers. We've got Todrick Hunt, who's a full-time recruiting reporter. Steve is around a lot as a columnist. So I think it's really kind of grown. I think a lot of that is, as you said, gets back to that sleeping giant stuff. And when they had the boom in the Shiano era, it kind of became something. Now, the interest in the program has waned in recent years um, because of the losing, I I think, as you'd expect. Uh, We're at the point now where the press corps is, you know, I, I actually think that the other night when Walt Bell announced the starting quarterback, there were more reporters at UMass practice than there were at Rutgers practice that day. Um, I, we have, you know, the, Gannett and us, the, so the two dailies that cover the team on a regular basis, and then the, the rival site and the 247 site. If the team starts to win again, I think you might see some of the other papers in New Jersey come out again. Um, granted, a lot of them are owned by Gannett now, so it's kind of consolidation of the chain. And obviously the New York papers are kind of, when a team's winning or there's a massive scandal, which Rutgers has been good at at times, uh, they'll be there, but for the most part, that's kind of regressed. But uh, yeah, so I would say there, there's interest. There's a very kind of, I don't think it's a, a massively large fan base, but the fan base that is there is extremely passionate. Yeah, and I, and I just think like it's important to note that because they're there, and you're you're an SEC guy, and and yeah. I've spent some time down there. I'm sort of a sneaky Ole Miss fan. Long story. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, I just think it's important to to show UMass fans in many ways like that that your Rutgers is a place where I think UMass you know is aiming to get in the sense that I mean I think right now you have about 16,000 season ticket holders down from like mm-hmm. 30,000 a few years ago yes but you UMass would kill for those numbers UMass numbers are like you know we don't have exact figures but it's like I've heard from people I trust anywhere from 1500 to 2000 2500 mm-hmm. um, so it, it's not even comparable and it wasn't that long ago, you know, in the grand scheme of things that, first of all, when I was a kid, Rutgers was in the Atlantic 10 in yes. basketball. Um, and so it wasn't that long ago that Rutgers was in utter doldrums and the, you know, Shiano boom 
brought us to, you know, ultimately to where we are now. And obviously the proximity to New York helps in terms of, uh, you know, the Big Ten network. And we, we don't have to sort of belabor that. But I, I just think UMass fans should, uh, you know, we, we are certainly not one to to take the Rutgers fan base lightly, as I think may, might be the case in, in the rest of the Big Ten. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, I think that obviously I grew up in New Jersey and I never looked at it as a – as as strange a cultural fit as some people looked at it just because you know growing up when i was a kid ohio state penn state michigan those were the games that were on abc every every saturday you know i always kind of looked at it as it was new york the new york new jersey market was kind of a big 10 market to begin with because you know those were the games you know notre dame like those were the games you know, obviously you had the SEC games on CBS, but for the most part, if you were getting a national game, you were getting someone in the Big Ten or someone from the Midwest. You know, that you know, that was just kind of wasn't really ACC games. It wasn't Big Twelve games. It was those sort of games. So I always thought that you know, it's it's a connecting state with Pennsylvania. It kind of meshed. Um, I, I and I think most of the, I think there's two things. One, I think if Rutgers starts to win, I think people will kind of get with the program. And two, I think most of the um, opposition I found is from the the true, you know, like heartland fan bases, less so than Penn State, Michigan, Ohio State. Yeah, that's probably that's probably a succinct way of putting it. So I, I will say, however, that <laughs> I've been a little bit startled by just how confident uh, both the Rutgers press corps <laughs> and its fan base has been about the opener and. You know, I understand UMass is under, you know, has a new coach, lost a lot mm-hmm. of skill guys, but you're still talking about a Rutgers team that went one and eleven in largely disastrous fashion last yes. year. If we're if we're if we're being perfectly honest, a guy, you know, a team coached by a guy who is very much um, on his last legs this year if he doesn't win by all accounts, uh, or perhaps not by all accounts. I think there's some this debate over that. But why why the uh, you know, irrational or, or maybe not irrational confidence about, you know, and by the way, I, I think you probably are about a two touchdown favorite. I think that's probably accurate. Mm-hmm. But do you think it's a little bit uh, presumptuous of the, you know, sort of Rutgers Twitter sphere and others to uh, to believe that this is, you know, such an easy game? I mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily that easy of a game. I, um, I, I we have our picks coming out, uh, coming out soon. I think UMass is going to cover. I think the line's 15 and a half points. I think you're right. I think you, Rutgers wins the game by you know 13, 14 points. Um, I think UMass is kind of a dangerous opponent for Rutgers just because the way I look at UMass is if Rutgers comes out slow and who knows what the attendance is going to look like in the stadium on Friday night, I'm intrigued to see how many UMass fans show up potentially. Um, you know, I, I look. You know, it's a young team. I know they got a lot of new faces, but you know, it seems from afar that there's a buzz around UMass football, and Walt Bell has kind of generated excitement. And I just, you know, when you got the young head coach and the young energetic staff, and the young kids, a lot of whom probably were overlooked or can feel they were overlooked by Rutgers when they were being recruited, and if that team gets into halftime tied or like with, like within a score, and they're getting the ball back to start the second half. You know, those kids start to believe everything that Walt Bell and his staff have been telling them for months. And, hey, this is happening. We can do this. So I think that 
UMass could be a very dangerous opponent if they can somehow get into the locker room at halftime and be in the game. That being said, I don't know if it's so much confidence from the Rutgers fan base, because there are a lot of people who are not terribly optimistic about this team. I think it's more a sense of Rutgers is a Big Ten member. They should go into this game with UMass with a swagger, thinking they're going to win easily, because that's what Big Ten teams do. Maybe it's a little bit of false bravado. Um, but I think that's more the approach. And I think that some people, you know, myself included, were kind of taken aback with how tight Chris Ash. And I understand Chris Ash is, you know, fighting for his job, longest losing streak in the nation. But I just, I was expecting a little bit more of an air of confidence from this Rutgers team this week uh, that they were going to, you know, hey, we're a Big Ten member. You know, we're going to play UMass. We should beat UMass. And I think most people would agree that on paper, Rutgers should be better than UMass. Um, but I didn't sense as much of an air of confidence from, from Ash at his press conference. And I think the fan base is sort of, hey, we should beat UMass. But in the back of their head, they're wondering, well, what's going to happen if we don't? And it's interesting. I'll say this for, for UMass. Uh, UMass has, we, we joke often on UMass Twitter that I think UMass is undefeated against the spread versus SEC teams over the last several years. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, against like BC um, or more regional opponents who have you know less of a national cachet, we've actually struggled. And I, I, I don't I have this strange theory that there's something to like the t- the teams in this part of the country are like vaguely familiar with UMass and and are kind of like they have a chip in their shoulder from like being like yeah we we turn them down. Whereas like the SEC schools just don't it's like not even on their radar and they kind of overlook UMass and UMass mm-hmm. has had. I mean, you know, as a South Carolina guy, UMass almost won that game a few years ago. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, so, it, it, so that'll be interesting to see how it shakes out, and I and I could, you know, absolutely see it being like a fairly comfortable Rutgers win. But you're right that if it goes late and UMass is hanging around, I feel like the vibes lingering around Ash are, are just going to assert themselves and could be very dangerous for Rutgers and. The question I have for you, and this is a joke that we've been, you know, bandying about on UMass Twitter for the last uh, couple months, really, is that if Rutgers loses, uh, not only will David Ash be fired, but the institution itself will cease to exist. Obviously, we're being ironic on the on the latter point, but what does it do to David Ash if you open the year with a loss to UMass, coming off of a one and eleven season, and with top twenty Iowa on the horizon? Well, it's, it's not just it's not just Iowa for Chris Ash. I mean, it's you play obviously UMass, and then you got to Iowa. And I think most most Rutgers fans are sitting there thinking, okay, one and one. Then they have an open date. You know, everyone's got two two open dates this season because of the calendar. So then they play BC at home. Uh, that's going to be the biggest game of Chris Ash's coaching career, probably, because Boston College. You know. I understand the, you know you guys know like every year seven and five I get that but you know Chris Ash doesn't have a signature win yet you know I mean he beat Purdue uh, in 2017 like before kind of Purdue kind of took off under Jeff Brom so I guess you could maybe retroactively go back and give that to him but no one's really doing that but you know he doesn't you know he he didn't get you know they. They were competitive with Wisconsin and Penn State last year. I think if they were a little more aggressive and caught a break, maybe they could have pulled 
found a way to pull an upset. They didn't do that. So, but you have a Boston College team that, you know, honestly, it's it's an old rival. It's a brand name. Steve Adazio is a guy who has been in the mix to be a Rutgers coach in the past. There's always people who think that Steve Adazio is a guy who might be interested in the job in the future if it were to come open again. You know, Adazio is a guy who's under some have some pressure at BC too. But, you know, and Boston College recruits the state of New Jersey really well, and they've pulled some kids that Rutgers has wanted out of the state. So I think you get to that game, and it's kind of a fork-in-the-road moment for Ash and for the program. If they upset BC at home or they beat BC at home, I don't know if you want to consider an upset or not, well, then you're 2-1, and one and you're going to play Michigan the next weekend, but you at least know that you're going to come home to start October when you're playing Maryland, kind of the pseudo-rival. Um, you're going to be 500 at that point. And I think that if you beat BC, I think those casual fans that maybe left the program as all the losing, maybe they're kind of drawn back in to, to buy a ticket to go to that Maryland game because there's some buzz around the program. You know, you but get my, sort of get... My, go ahead. No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to cut you off. My question, maybe I could, you can hear the, the first time, but my question is, if you guys lose to UMass with mm-hmm. Iowa on the horizon, so you're 0-1 entering Iowa, right? Yes. Is the season over? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I guess I was trying to get in a roundabout way that, yes, like you're in, you're in trouble because the next three games after that are Iowa, BC, and Michigan. And I don't think most Rutgers fans look at that and say, if you get one out of three, you're very lucky. So you're absolutely right. Now, do I think they would fire Chris Ash on Saturday morning? No. But I think if you lose to UMass, one, people are going to start saying 0-12 is on the table because – uh, a lot of people are convinced that they're going to lose the Liberty later in the season. Um, I think they will lose the Liberty. I think Liberty is probably a better team than Rutgers at this point. They've got Hugh Freeze. They, they've. I think Liberty is going to become a big story in college football. So, uh, yeah, I think it's it, if they were to lose to UMass, it would be like a cataclysmic event. Um, I don't think it would be a, an immediate like the Axe Falls event, but I think that it's really hard to see what the path forward is for Rutgers with a loss to UMass. In terms of cataclysmic and just how that manifests itself among the fan base, um, do you hear, you know, because I think this, in college in the Northeast, it's fairly uncommon, but I'm curious, do you hear Boo Birds at, at, um, at the Rutgers Stadium? Was it HPI? What's this? HPI? SHI Stadium. They changed the name, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, you heard some last year. I mean, I will say that for the most part, I think that in the past years there's always kind of infamous stories about Rutgers fans really booing the quarterbacks or the, this kid or that kid I think most of the fan anger and angst has been directed toward Ash um, and I would expect that to be more of the same but I mean I think that's going to be a very fascinating kind of subplot too if this team you know were to lose to UMass or win unimpressively against UMass and then losses start to pile up you know four of their final six games are played at home and like mid-October and later, you know, what is that crowd going to look like and how vocal is that crowd going to be? Like, I could see a situation where you've got 10,000 people in the stands and 9,000 are literally just screaming and booing the whole time. Like, it, it could get really, really ugly quickly. So, um, yeah, I would say, like, it's a crowd that can get kind of vocal and, and maybe have a little nasty edge to it. But in the old days, it seems like that would be directed toward players. Because I, I've always said, I, I'm sure it might be a little bit similar at UMass, and I think some people struggle with that he, this year, is that 
you know, New Jersey fans root for a college team like Rutgers the way they root for the Giants or the Jets. Right, right. You know, like they're professional. It, I think that's one of the reasons why maybe some people at Rutgers um, get have issues. Like, you know, I speak for ourselves and other outlets. Like we cover Rutgers football with that so, not as much of an edge as you cover like the Giants. But it's a little bit more. I think you go to other college towns, it's a little bit more late. I think some college towns, their, their beats, their, their press corps, it's kind of like high it's school pretty coverage. Chummy. It's, pr- it's, yeah, pretty it's chummy. chummy. Yeah, it's chummy. It's like high school. It's like a little bit edgier than your, your run-of-the-mill prep coverage, but it's pretty close to covering a high school team. Where here, I think it's, it's not as, like, cutting as a pro coverage, but it's close. I mean, you know. If something happens, like we're we're gonna write it, you know, we're gonna kind of we're gonna cover it. But we're, you know, I've always said like we're gonna cover if we're gonna cover Rutgers, like we're gonna cover Rutgers. So I think that sort of translates over to the fan base as well. It's it's a little bit more demanding because people, you know, it's it's a pro kind of pro sports culture that people are kind of pushing over to colleges. Well, and that's kind of what I like about the Rutgers coverage. And, and as someone who I live in New York City. Mm-hmm. and grew up next to UMass, actually didn't even attend UMass, but grew up during the Calipari years. And, and so I, I just got hooked on, on a thing that really is not uh, nearly as big as, in, you know, in the broader scheme of things as we make it on this show and, and elsewhere. But I, I, and I'm just a college football guy. And so I follow the Rutgers coverage here because I'm always rooting for them to do well. And I, I want the sport to gain more traction in the region. And, and I've actually never been to Rutgers, but I now have a, a kid who's three and I can like foresee myself, you know, conceivably having season tickets when he's seven, eight, whatever. Um, and I like that you guys do that. So, you know, kudos there. And I, and I, and I think it's given me a, a respect for not only the, the press core there, but, but also the fan base that there is a, a legitimate back and forth in, in a, that, that's comparable to what you'd see with pro teams in the region. So I think that's good for, for Rutgers and I think it's it's good for college football in this region and uh, you know I, I wouldn't stop just F just for what it's for, no what I appreciate that no and I, I think it is too I mean I've always said that I think college football in this region can really grow you know obviously the, the days are long gone of like a like a regional conference but I think it's good you know Rutgers you know there was kind of a big controversy a couple of years last year well they, they you know they, they had a home and home booked with UCLA that was supposed to start next season and they bought their way out of it to set up a home and home with Syracuse and I think a lot of Rutgers fans were saying well you know you're, you're ducking UCLA well in hindsight you know Syracuse is gonna have a better team those next two years than UCLA will probably yeah, they're fringe top twenty-five. Exactly, but I, I think my point was, what is Rutgers gaining? You know, to go out to Pasadena. I mean, it would have been awesome to go cover a game at the Rose Bowl, but you know, you're not going to travel many Rutgers fans there. Um, you know, when and UCLA comes here, I'm skeptical about how many you know UCLA you know tickets you're going to sell there. But I think if you if Rutgers Syracuse, I mean. People can get in the car and drive. You know, UMass fans can come down here. I think that's how the sport grows in the region is if you get to the point. And Rutgers has one of these schedules coming up, I think, in 20, 2021, where basically they're going to play seven home games and they're going to be at BC and at Temple. So you're basically playing nine games that your fans can drive to. And I think that kind of helps grow the sport. Yeah, and for what it's worth, I think the one thing 
that's really lacking among the Northeastern fan bases in college football is the travel culture. Mm -hmm. Um, You just, you know, for whatever reason, other than, you know, Penn State notwithstanding, BC, UConn, even when they were having great years, you know, one or two times in the last 10 or 15, Rutgers, they just they just don't travel. So yeah, I just think that that's where the kind of um, the end game is like that's where that's where you get to a point where it's just like in the South, there's just a culture, as you know, of like you plan your New Year's around a bowl game. Like that's just what you do. And you've done it 20 years in a row. And you so I think that's kind of the the point where there are some limitations with respect to just like ability to grow the sport regionally but absolutely i think a game like this even and and umass football travel is like it's barely a thing but a lot of people are going to this game and 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 that's and that's despite the fact that it's labor day weekend so i definitely think there you know it's a great game for UMass. I don't know how Rutgers fans feel but i, I think it's a very good opportunity for our fan base and we're excited to check out the stadium what's the game day atmosphere like before we transition to the actual game yeah so it's going to be a really kind of a, a f- action-packed day on friday so Rutgers is going to unveil around like four o'clock this 18 foot tall victory statue the one of the big donors you know has donated where it's gonna be like a it's a bronze statue of like kind of a, a knight on his horse after battle with the sword and everything. Um, Rutgers is now going to sell beer and out and wine at games for the first time. So they're, they just announced it today, like, it is a robust offering of different beers and wines. Um, pretty pricey, but you're going to have that. Um, around, about an hour before kickoff, they're going to have the, the theater. The theater students reenact the first college football game, obviously 150th anniversary this year. And they're gonna have fireworks after the game, which really intrigues me because uh, all the post-game press conferences are in the Hale Center, which is the football facility, which is connected to the stadium. So when the game ends, we kind of walk down the stands onto the field and walk onto the other side up the tunnel into the Hale Center. So I- I'm kind of intrigued to see how loud the like where the fireworks are and. You know, like, is the health center going to be shaking with explosions as we try to do the press conference afterwards? So, uh, it's a it's a good atmosphere. I think it's it's not necessarily one you know the the, the classic all time you know college football. You know, it's, it's not the Grove necessarily, but it is a good atmosphere, and um, they got a lot of interesting things to see on Friday at least. And, and just in general, it's pretty easy to, you know, like the tailgating setup, they're pretty, they're not like particularly stringent. I mean, nobody's going to, what is it? That dynamic is pretty. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the things I, I think a lot of Rutgers fans is that the part, I think most Rutgers fans get, say, the parking sucks and whatever, but having gone to a lot of different college stadiums, there's more parking near the stadium than like most places I've ever been to. And so they've got some big, you know, big grass fields, you know, lots. But so you can tailgate pretty easily. You can walk around. I mean, the one thing that I, I will tell fans who are coming is that, you know, Rutgers is kind of a spread out campus. You know, it, it, it's in New Brunswick. It's in Piscataway. There are different campuses. So Bush Campus is where the football stadium is. So that's where if you're looking at stuff, 
that's where you want to go. And Bush Campus is in Piscataway, which is other side of the river from New Brunswick. So uh, if you want to go down to New Brunswick you know, before the game, just know that you're not going to be in downtown New Brunswick and then decide you're going to walk to the game you know, with, with 45 minutes to go. That's not going to work. So am I, I'm coming from the city. I'm going to take the this – is, this isn't what we're here for, but I'm taking like NGRA Transit, I think, to New Brunswick. I don't think it goes to Piscataway. No, it goes, there. it goes to New Brunswick, yes. And then I can like take – I heard there's like – it's like an, a mile and a half walk or something. Yeah, so I would say it, it's it's a haul. Um, you know, you, you you could you walk directly from uh, New Brunswick Station to SHI Stadium? Yes. You know, you basically you'd walk up – you'd walk on a college – at. College Avenue campus, basically New College Avenue gym, you know, the College Avenue Student Center. So you'd walk on that campus and then you'd get, there's a footbridge, a, a landing lane footbridge that crosses over the Raritan. So you could do it. Uh, it's a long walk. I would probably suggest it. an Uber or a cab or something. I, I think they have some buses that'll take you to certain parts of campus, um, some game day buses. But yeah, no, it, it's, it's a very nice stadium. You know, it, it, it's not right on the river, but it's close to the river. So you can see that. Um, you know, and I said they got all these new amenities, a lot of new food options. I think they've really kind of enhanced that. I think one of the big focuses Rutgers has had internally as an athletics department is they can't necessarily fix the winning or guarantee that they can fix the winning. So they're doing a lot to kind of improve the game day atmosphere. I think a lot of schools around the country are. I mean, I will say with this, the Rutgers marketing staff, they those people do everything they are creative they try very very hard to kind of increase the attendance of these games i think at the end of the day wins and losses what really kind of is the hammer that's kind of what determines it but they've really done a lot and they're adding a lot this year all right so let's move to the actual football game here for a moment uh now that you've given us a nice breakdown of sort of the fan base and and the dynamics Mm -hmm. around the program more broadly um i i was doing a little uh research today about um about our quarterback Randall West, who is a, a is a yes. has almost a mythic status among the the biggest diehard UMass fans for a variety of reasons. A uh, a status that in many ways, just if there's any Rutgers fans listening, um, is born out of his basketball performance um, when he was enlisted. We had four scholarship players. He joined the basketball at one point, and he joined the basketball team, having despite having basically never played on the football team. He is in. He was a 2013 New Jersey recruit. He graduated high school mm-hmm. in 2014. Didn't enroll at UMass till 15 because he gray shirted. He's been here four years and never played basically. And he's a great kid. And now he's announced shockingly as the starter uh, yesterday to to the incredible delight of of UMass fans. Um, that being said. The story about him winning the Player of the Year in 2014. Do you know who the writer was in the in NJ.com winning the him winning that award? I think it may have been me, James Cratch. So yes. Yeah, so funny story here. So I, you know, if, if anyone's familiar with New Jersey geography, um, my main when I covered high schools, my main beat that I covered was uh, Somerset and Union counties. So the Mid-State 38 Conference, or they don't have 38 teams anymore, but that's what it was called at the time. And my like my my tertiary beat, it was kind of like everybody, because back then we had you know it was much more newspaper focused. So we had all these you know the Star Ledger base. We we still do cover the entire state, but we covered the entire state in a different way. So everyone kind of had like a third beat where they didn't really ever cover games and 
honestly, you didn't really ever like communicate with the people. You just kind of had to get the information in. And prep football, and the reason why we called it prep was because all the schools in the state that played football that but were not part of the NJSIA, the state like, kind of high school governing body, um, was they were kind of shoehorned into prep. And, you know, Hun, Blair, Petty, those schools. And then Lawrenceville, uh, at least Hun, Blair, and Petty, and I'm, I'm forgetting the last one off the top of my head. Um, I can't believe I'm forgetting this. Um, <coughs> excuse me. They were in the Maple, the Mid-Atlantic Prep League. And then Lawrenceville was not. <coughs> so what you'd have to do is every year, like, the Maple would name, like, the All-Maple team. And then you'd have to fold the Lawrenceville kids into the All-Maple team to kind of figure all prep team well Randall West made it very easy for me because he threw like five touchdown passes at the game and that <laughs> and then he and he was a two-time you know they say yes. he's like this two-time star ledger player of the year but that doesn't I mean let's be honest that doesn't include like the kids who are going to Don Bosco and oh no 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 he was the prep, yeah. prep prep state player of the year I think I only did prep football one year I think we had a a part-timer, an intern who took it the second year, but he threw eight, eight touchdown passes in a game. I forget against which team. At the time, that was a state record. It got broken, I think, a year later. And and he, but that league is not regarded as uh, particularly dynamic. I <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, they played some good teams, but there would be some funky scores. You know, like they play like a team from Canada and they win by like 50 points and then they go play a team from like New York State and they lose by 50 points it was up and down yeah but needless to say you're familiar with West um, yes and uh, you, have you, do you, you never actually saw him play I presume no never saw him play which most of us haven't either except basketball which is why we love him um, yeah but uh it, it, I was and, I was stunned that he got the job. I think yes, Rutgers I was, was say, too because we. When you're watching this from afar, are you preparing? Because I have, I've proffered a theory, and I'm curious if as you've been. I don't know how much you've been following the lead up to this game, but mm-hmm. I prof, I proffered a theory that Walt Bell. Everybody sort of thought he was going to go with this run pass option stuff and you know speed up, heavy tempo, blah blah blah. And so there were two guys on the roster, the other two quarterbacks competing for the job. That basically we thought it was a two man fight. Yes. Michael Curtis, who played last year, and Brito, who's an, a Jersey kid from a powerhouse mm-hmm. Jersey school who transferred from a JUCO. Um, and I had, I've proffered a theory that maybe West plays one set of downs and it's just to throw off uh, Ash and put, you know, put, put some fear <clears throat> in his head. Do you, are you buying that at all? I don't know because I will say this. We were practice very briefly on Monday and they had scout, you know, in the press conference, I think they made a comment where. They knew three were competing. I think it was Andy Boo, the defensive coordinator, but they figured two were serious. And then the scout team guys had Brito's number and uh, Curtis's number. So I think that's what Rutgers was expecting. I, I figured from afar um, that Curtis would get it just because you go with the incumbent, you know. That's, I thought that might be a safe way to start for them. But what I'm wondering is maybe – is West a sign that they just want to kind of manage the game and protect the ball? And I think that's maybe the path to victory. Yeah, I mean, UMass has a, uh, <laughs> you know, an inexperienced offense, but an even more inexperienced defense in many ways. Yeah. And I think Rutgers has some guys who can run the ball between the tackles. We'll get to that in a moment. 
so I, I think that that's another legitimate theory. I think West, you know, by all accounts, the thing you constantly hear about him is good decision maker, good decision maker, good leader. You know, it's that kind of thing. So if you are looking to, you know, dink and dunk a little here and there and kind of, you know, uh, basketball is more my technical mm-hmm. forte. So I don't, I don't schematically, I'm not, I'm not going to articulate this well, but. I think West is the guy who can keep possession, yes. maybe kind of frustrate <clears throat> Rutgers a little bit and, 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 and keep their offense off the field. I, I think that's you're probably right. That is another possibility. Let's talk about the Rutgers defense. I mean, last year they were just torn asunder by just about everyone, certainly the first two-thirds of the season. Yes. I know they improved a little bit in the, in the final third, but um, there's you hear that they have some really good – uh, corners mm-hmm. and um, it's interesting because UMass's strength is their wide receiving core so so I, I could foresee that their corners neutralizing them what about their front seven uh, the, the back seven's pretty solid they, they have got a good secondary although they've got some new oh, sorry, their, ha- front, their front yeah, four I'm sorry I would say the front four is the weak spot um, their defensive ends, they return two stars, Mike Turdov and Ellen Loomer at defensive end. They tied for the team lead in sacks last year, which is not a lot. Um, because they were, both were kind of dinged up, and Rutgers' pass rush has been really poor the past few seasons. Uh, and they've got some young guys behind them. I mean, they're not proven producers, but they at least are guys who have had good springs, good summers. They feel like they can produce. Inside, though... You got a lot of questions. I mean, depth is suspect. Your your two starters are guys who have neither of they've started in the past, but neither guy has really kind of been a, a full fledged you know Big Ten starter for twelve games. And you're gonna have you know Julius Turner, their nose guard, has had some back issues. I think there's some lingering concern about how much an undersized guy like him is gonna hold up, you know, inside over the long haul of a Big Ten season. But they don't have much depth at interior tackle on a defensive line proven as a whole. So they, they love their linebackers. They like their secondary. But they don't get a push up front. You know, I don't know if it's necessarily going to kill them against UMass. But in the Big Ten, it's a line of scrimmage league. And they have issues, I think, on both sides of the ball up front. I mean, in many, in many ways, I think it's a fortunate matchup for Rutgers because the strengths of UMass of this UMass offense is that they're actually fairly loaded at wide receiver despite losing Andy Isabella. They have a mm-hmm. bunch of guys who can play. Sadiq Palmer's really good and a bunch of other guys with length and, and, and speed. But it sounds like you guys are pretty quality in the secondary. Yeah, no, it's it's strong secondary. Um they really like the cornerback duo. Avery Young is a guy who is kind of becoming one of the stars of the program. Um he got pressed in action last year as a true freshman end up starting 11 games um, and then you go to Damon Hayes who had really was, was a corner, moved to safety, had a good year and now he's moved back to corner um, there's a lot of people who think he's the best NFL draft prospect, you know he's a senior they have on a team uh, they're breaking in two new safeties one young guy, one guy Malik Dixon um, who was a Juco kid who got suspended for all of last year because he got caught up in the, the credit card fraud scam that a bunch of players were kind of Involved in, but he's back reinstated to the program. He just looks like he's like an NFL caliber playmaker. He's a big, tall kid. Safety's his natural position. I think they feel he has kind of ball hawk play playmaking ability there. So uh, it's 
a little bit of a question mark about how the, the safeties are going to do, but I think that they're confident that those guys are going to produce. They've got experience at linebacker um, and depth there. I just think it's a defensive line that's really the big issue for them. Given that, I, I, I just, I, you know, sort of caveat here, but I, I or an aside, I should say, I, I think you probably will see Brito, uh, and you pronounce it Brito. I, I don't know if it's Brito or Brito. You probably know him better than we do because he's a New Jersey. I kid. think it's Brito, but I didn't okay. cover him in high school, so if I'm wrong, I apologize, Andrew. He's pretty highly regarded, <clears throat> I, I think, and I mean, you know, had had an injury in, late in high school, but was pretty pretty darn good at the highest level in New Jersey and the fact that he can move a little bit against uh, maybe a little bit of a suspect D-line I have a pretty strong hunch especially in his home state he's going to get on the field on Friday night in some form or fashion yeah and it wouldn't shock me if we see two or three of them play Um, because I agree with you I think that for everything Rutgers is expecting and everything you kind of expect based on what Walt Bell has done Randall West is a guy who doesn't really fit the bill, so uh, it should be interesting to see. But I, I do think, you know, Brito's a guy who, when there was some Rutgers fans who were like, you know, we should offer this guy. Obviously, they, they didn't. So I, I don't know if, if he was a guy who wanted to come home and where he kind of stands. Um, I know his height, I think, has maybe been a concern for some folks. But uh, his one year he started Primus Catholic, he won a state title. Uh, you know, that's the highest level of high school football in the state. So uh, he's definitely a guy who can play, who has played for really good teams before and, and among the highest levels in the country really yes. i mean i mean in many ways and, and i suspect that I, I i'm a little behind the times here but i suspect that rutgers still gets a considerable number of players from that league yeah i uh, that's kind of a sore spot not as many as you would think um that's always well, been they, kind I of knew the, the guy went to michigan that one guy went yeah. to michigan right no, yeah, Partridge went to Michigan. I mean, I think Rutgers, their biggest issue has always been, you know, whether it's true or not, one of the perceptions has always been that a lot of those kids who are going to those parochial schools up in Bergen County um, and St. Peter's Prep in Jersey City, you know, those are kids who they're kind of maybe pre-inclined to go to a Boston college, to go to a Notre Dame, to go to a place like that. And that's kind of hurt Rutgers. Um, you know, I, I think there's been times where Rutgers has gone, gone all out, thinking that, you know, the key to, you know, the, the sleeping giant awaking from its 150-year slumber is to get every kid from the Big North. But I think in recent years, you've kind of seen Rutgers go, you know, we've been trying to do this for 15, 20 years. It hasn't happened like we hope it would. We, we, we've landed some good players, but the vast majority of the top elite recruits that have kind of gone to those schools have gone elsewhere. So we should kind of circle back um, and focus elsewhere. If you were if you were to ask you know twenty people in the New Jersey high school football community about how what Rutgers approach Rutgers has to take to to better keep kids in state, you would get twenty different uh, you know opinions. I think there's some coaches who argue that if you look at the history of Rutgers football. You know, like when they beat Michigan in 2014, the first year in the Big Ten, obviously Michigan was down, but they had like seven or eight starters on on their defense that were from different public schools in New Jersey. So a lot of people say, you know, that you got to get the best kid at every public school rather than trying to get the best two or three kids from Bergen Catholic and you end up with the eighth best kid. Um, But those are those are definitely major schools for Rutgers. And I think everyone's always hoping that the day comes where Rutgers gets more of those kids. Yeah, it's, it's, it remains to me really impressive, especially given the just 
anemic nature nature of high school football in New York, particularly the city, um, how good New Jersey high school football continues to be, even in an era in which you know fewer and fewer kids are playing the game around mm-hmm. the north the Northeast. The state has managed to, and, and by the way, it's served UMass tremendously well, and yes. and other Northeast programs who get those kind of high two star fringe two three star. You know, I mean Victor yeah. Cruz and Tajay Sharp, the last two NFL wideouts at UMass, are both New Jersey kids who are you know kind of overlooked <laughs> by. I think actually Tajay had a Rutgers offer very late. I may be mistaken in that, but I mean he's from Piscataway, so like yes. I'm stunned they didn't get him because he's one of the best pass catchers I've ever seen at, at the collegiate level. Like, um, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's it's fascinating to me that that New Jersey remains as good as it does in in the high school realm, and that that hasn't translated to Rutgers being consistently good, particularly after the Shiano era. Yeah, I just think it's you know, I think one of the issues is that, um, and and Rutgers fans don't want to hear it, but you know. I just think when you grow up in New Jersey, you know, for, what I always say is that we start off the bat. A lot of times, they're just kids who want to go to school like out of state. You know, like people get upset when the football player doesn't want to go to school at Rutgers, but you know, if the chemistry student or the kid who plays the tuba in the band wants to go someplace else, no one bats an eye. So I think I think that's part of it. I think that you know Rutgers has done a lot to kind of make the campus nicer in recent years, but. You know, there was a period where, where the campus, you know, was, was not not exactly like a classic college experience that I think most people are looking for. Um, and I, I think also that, you know, it, it's just it, it's a big state and it's almost like two states because South Jersey is so different from North Jersey. Um, and it's just I, I think a lot of times too it just comes down to you know tradition and winning. And you're right, they they they, they had a moment there with Chiano and. The last class, Shiano, I mean, he didn't finish it, you know, but when Shiano left for uh, the Buccaneers, they were about to sign, like, a, a major, you know, the best class they've ever signed, and they were pulling some of the top kids in the state from Mabosco or Bergen Catholic. I think people always kind of say, what if, what if Greg had stayed and continued to build on that? I think at this point, you know, it's going to take some winning, but I also think that... Um, it's all going to take a look at. Look, I've always said this that New Jersey's critical to Rutgers becoming a, a stronger program, but New Jersey alone can't turn Rutgers into uh, a Big Ten title contender. I think that if you look at most states, I, I go back to my time at South Carolina, um, there was like a three, four, five year period where Steve Spurrier landed every elite recruit in the state of South Carolina. Jadevian Clowney, Alshon Jeffrey, Stefan Gilmore, Devontae Hallman, he got them all. And they won 11 games three years in a row. They beat Clemson five straight years. They went to the SEC title game. All those guys went on to play in the NFL. But the same, like, you don't get a group like that. You know, Marcus Lattimore, like, then the talent kind of regressed back to the mean. And Clemson got some of those kids. So I think you can't just build, you can't win a national title with only New Jersey kids. I still think you need to branch out to New York. Uh, which Rutgers has done. You need to get Pennsylvania. You need to go down to the DMV. You need to go to New England. Because I just think you can't just count on your one state because even if you get to a point where you are landing those kids consistently and keeping them home, you're going to have a natural 10, 15 years period where it dips a little bit, and then you're right back to where you were. The parallels between you know just Rutgers and UMass in many ways are 
are just they're the same place in certain regards. I mean, yes. in terms in terms of the I mean, Rutgers obviously now is Big Ten, and I think that's put them in a completely different domain. And I give I give that university a tremendous amount of credit for it. I think it's elevated the profile of the entire university. But I will say, just what, what, what I'm getting at is, both Massachusetts and New Jersey have good flagship state universities that have been routinely overlooked because they're in states with some of the most affluent populations who can afford elite private schools elsewhere and states that have i mean you're you got princeton right there you got you know you got columbia in the back in your backyard so at likewise in massachusetts you have like 10 of the best schools in the country so even though umass is a very highly regarded school uh, it's like it's it's always fighting that uphill battle. However, I think the transition since and this is just like a working theory I have. We don't have to get into it, but because we I want to get back to the game and I don't know how much time we have. But I think that the 2008 recession changed the game a little bit in terms of people's undergraduate their conception of like the undergraduate experience where they're like, you know what? And, and plus the investment in like honors colleges and things like that mm-hmm. where people are like, you know what? Like. <clears throat> Why, why would I go to, okay, maybe you go to Princeton, but like, why would I leave, you know, the state to go to, I don't know, Franklin Marshall or just like whatever random, like sort of rich kids, rich kids school, like when you could go to Rutgers. And I think you combine big 10 athletics with that fact. I think that Rutgers, if your fans are listening, I think you're more ascendant than people give you credit for and 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 eventually you know the the work that they're doing on the ground and to to make it a better program and i think that will break through because institutionally i think rutgers has improved so much and umass i think is going through a similar um similar improvement swing so that's just my my sort of two cents on yeah i mean just quickly like I, i think if you look at the rutgers athletics department as a whole it's getting it's getting better you know that you know that they had seven um there's like seven women's athletic teams at Rutgers, you know, team competition. Five wrestling of them is like massive there. Wrestling is massive in the state of New Jersey. I think of all the programs, like wrestling has been the biggest winner of the Big Ten because like the wrestling program with two national champions and like that's my, it's like my second, like I always tell people like, you know, Sarge, my partner does the hoops, I do the wrestling. Like wrestling has become as big for me as football. Like I am writing about wrestling all year round, and the I'm thing about wrestling is, that. I see the crowds on like Twitter or whatever. I, think I mean, I yeah, like they're selling. They're probably gonna have four thousand season tickets this year. Like, um, they're probably gonna have, Like, I mean, wrestling is a huge sport in the state of New Jersey at the high school and the youth level. It's huge. This is a wrestling crazed state, and now you have a program that not only is in the Big Ten, which is the, the top of college wrestling, but with two national champions, they just signed a number four recruiting class in the country. Like Rutgers, the, the blueprint that people have always talked about with football, keep the kids in state, you know, charismatic program building head coach. You know, Scott Goodell is basically whatever Greg Schiano, if he laid the foundation for, Scott Goodell has fully executed it because they are at a point now, not to get too sidetracked, where they're going to be like a top ten program nationally, year in and year out. They've got a little bit of a hump year they got to get over now, but in starting in like 2020, if they continue to go on the trajectory that they are, every year they're going to have one or two kids that can win a national title when they go to nationals. How many <laughs> now, uh, D1 wrestling teams are there? Uh, there's about maybe like 80? 80 to 100. 
Okay. <laughs> it's they're uh, actually Arkansas Little Rock's launching a program this year. Um, it's become a big kind of boom sport at Division three levels. I think it's almost becoming sort of like football, where you've got a lot of schools that install Division three football because that increases to enrollment. Get men on campus. Yeah. Get men on exactly. campus. You're seeing that now. Um, just in, and that's another thing that Rutgers has going for is that. You know, just this year alone, two D3 schools are launching wrestling programs. So now, you know, one of the big reasons why a school like Iowa is so good is they've got all these D3 and junior college wrestling programs where if a kid's grades are at borderline, they can kind of steer the kid in there and get, you know, he's there for two years and then they get him. So I think Rutgers could be even better going forward. And Princeton and Ryder, too, because they're now going to have D3 programs, junior colleges, where they can put a kid and kind of let him, you know, get his academics lawyer, get, you know, grow and mature as a wrestler and then bring him in. All right. Let's go back to football. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we, got, we got sidetracked not only with wrestling, but also with New Jersey high school recruiting. And let's get back to the roster where, because what I want to know about is um, your offense, uh, which last year quarterbacks, I think, threw, and this just astonished me. Uh, and I've been very complimentary of Rutgers for much of this podcast, but five touchdowns to 22 interceptions is that is that did i misread that no that's right so you guys also have a quarterback battle on your hands and unlike us <clears throat> it is yet to be settled yes Who's, break down the the, the the quarterback fight and what are you hearing from your sources about who it might be yeah so basically art sikowski um stars a true freshman played 11 games last year um it was it was ugly at times you know, he, is, he, he a, is, he a, is he a Jersey kid? He's a Jersey kid. I mean, I think that's part of the issue is that he's a Jersey kid. He went to Old Bridge High School, um, was a heralded recruit, transferred to IMG in Florida for his senior year, struggled there. He was a Miami commit, um, but then he, you know, he wanted to come home, flipped, commits to Rutgers. Um, great kid, does everything you'd want, hardworking, face for the program. I mean, you see him in practice, he looks like Dan Marino. I mean, physically, he's got all the tools, all the gifts, the big arm, the everything. Um, he, I don't think he was ready last year. The offensive line struggled. The receivers weren't very good. I think his decision-making was poor, obviously. Was he a true freshman last year? <laughs> true freshman. Wow, okay. That's so he started, he started 11 games. Um, you know, he, he threw, like, but four picks against Kansas, five against Maryland. Um, he had some really ugly games, but he also had some games where you, you he kind of protected the football better, and it seemed like he was making progress. And then he had a game against Penn State where he just threw, I mean, like one of the worst picks I've ever seen. Like he was trying to throw the ball away, but I don't think he got enough air on it, and it just kind of this kind of rainbow arced. Like it was like almost like a fair catch into the Penn State linebackers' arms. They yanked him. They started the veteran for the last game, kind of against Michigan State, but. He, he went through spring practice. I don't know if he necessarily made as many as the same amount of strides that fans would have hoped for, but he, he improved. But they didn't have a lot of depth in position. They were waiting out uh, a transfer waiver from Johnny Langan, who transferred from BC, another uh, local kid who kind of came home. So they went to the portal. They landed a kid, McLean Carter, who started last year, started the opener at Texas Tech, got injured, and then kind of. They're, they got hit by injuries and he ended up starting the last game too. Not a whole lot of experience, but he's an older kid. 
So they brought him in kind of as insurance, and he kind of really came on strong in the second half um, of of training camp. And it looks like he's won the job. I think at this point, you know, Ash said that he wasn't going to name it for competitive reasons, and I I almost feel like Walt Bell, by turning around and naming the quarterback, maybe kind of took that excuse away, but I think Ash didn't want to kind of then concede and give it himself, so now he said... You know, it's out of respect to the players. I mean, I would assume the players know. I don't know if the entire team as a whole knows. So everyone expects it to be Carter. His reps have increased. I mean, he's looked better from the limited amount that we've seen in practice. And I also think, too, like, if, if your incumbent starter had won the job, again, you would just come out and say it. Like, I don't think you would play this cloak and dagger game because he's your guy. I mean, he was a starter last year. Why wouldn't you just come right, out and say right. he's a starter again? So. In a roundabout way to answer your question, um, I expect it to be Carter. I think everyone in town expects it to be Carter. Um, but I think the circle of, of confirmation that might be so tight at this point still, even as we're so close to the game, that the definitive hammer, like, it is Carter, has not come yet. And Ash is a pretty notori- notori- has been notoriously kind of uh, standoffish with the local press corps, right? Yeah, I, I just think that obviously he's under a lot of pressure this year. I, I mean, I think Chris is a good guy. I, I think one of them, and I, I haven't covered cr- Chris for his entire Rutgers career. I, I wasn't around for the first two seasons. Um, Bro, this is I only just, your second year on the beat? Only second year on the beat, yeah. Okay. I, I, think, I just think that in terms of... Uh, I think being a head coach, I think there's a lot of head coaches that don't think that, you know, PR, media relations, dealing with reporters is important. And I think it is. I mean, I think if you look at every every football coach in America from high school on up has to deal with the media to some extent. I think it's just as much of a job, not maybe as important of a job, but just as much a part of the job as coaching a team, X's and O's. And I just think that that's never been something he's terribly into. And that's fine if you're winning a lot. You know, I've always said that, you know, you got to be careful because I think, you know, I covered the Giants during Ben McAdoo's era. Um, And I'm not comparing Chris to Ben, but, you know, Ben's approach was as long as I fix the football, like everything else falls into place. And then you get to a point where you can't fix the football and all that other stuff that, you know, would help you, um, it's already kind of gone. And you're kind of stuck. So I, I think, that, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say standoff. I just think that it's obvious that like doing press conference is not necessarily his thing. And I just think it's a little bit of a contrast. That, and look, it's fair or unfair. People are always going to bring up Shiano in these things. And Shiano was a guy who opened everything up because he knew he had to build the buzz and get people talking about Rutgers football. And I think Chris hasn't necessarily done that. And he's always going to compare it to that. And I also think. Getting back to what we talked about earlier, the whole pro sports thing, like people know what's going on with the Giants and the Jets. Like there's media every day. I think people kind of yearn for that same thing, and colleges are obviously a bit more controlling. Um, this is the tack he's taken. He's announced a starter before, well before the game in the past here, but he's decided he wants to play this one close to the vets. So I expect it to be Carter. I'd be stunned if it wasn't Carter, but. As of now, we have yet to kind of have that thunderbolt when we know it's Carter for sure. Is Carter a kind of a Cliff Kingsbury type quarterback where he moves a little bit and throws the ball a ton, or what's the offense going to look like? 
I think it's gonna be a little more spread. Rutgers, their biggest issue right now is that their tight end depth is just poor. They lost their basically their three top tight ends last year. The, uh, they moved the tight end to wide receiver. You know, Jonathan Lewis, who expected to kind of be their starting tight end, just tore his Achilles in practice the other day. So I don't think they have the same amount of tight end depth or ability to kind of run more of a pro-style set. Um, I look at Carter as, obviously, he was in that air raid offense at Texas Tech. Um, But I I don't think he's a scrambler, per se. He might be a little bit more mobile than Art. um, But I don't think it's a dramatic difference in mobility. Uh, He's a lefty. Uh, I think they're going to try to run a lot of run-pass option, kind of run the ball. I don't think they're going to ask them to do too much. Um, I know some people said arm strength is a knock. I haven't necessarily seen that, but I, I can watching you know the one real game he's played in college when he, we had tape of, which is te- when the Texas Tech played Baylor last year at the end of the season. And granted, he was hurt. He ended up having ankle surgery after that game. Uh, I could see a couple of throws where you're like, oh, is, it, is the zip there? So. Uh, he's a gunslinger. That's what everyone kind of says. You know, kind of you know, prototypical Texas quarterback, football junkie. And I just wonder if he's a guy who, you know, when, when they played that Baylor Texas Tech game, watching the TV copy, there were like six, seven, eight throws that could have been picked off by Baylor defenders. So I'm intrigued to see is you know the biggest knock on Art last year obviously was the turnovers. Well, is Carter going to significantly cut back on the turnovers? Or is he going to be a guy who throws two, three picks a game? He just looks a lot better doing it. So, you know, UMass actually has a really quality secondary. Isaiah Rogers is like, I, I want to say, almost a sure thing NFL prospect. And there's some other guys back there, a transfer from West Virginia and some other kids who are like that. That's one of the strengths of their game. Uh, it's about getting pressure on him. It, how, how's the Rutgers offensive line? That's a big. I think that's the biggest question mark on the team. Um, I have not been terribly impressed with what I've seen in the spring and the summer. Uh, the coaching staff keeps on saying that they've improved. Um, I haven't seen it. I think that's a group where they were they struggled last year and they lost their two best players. Tariq Colney at you know, graduation. He was on NFL roster. I think he got cut by the Cardinals recently. I think he's still trying to find a new place. And then Jonah Jackson who was a team captain who was their best offensive lineman grad transfers to Ohio State, so that was a massive wow. blow for them. Wow. So uh, I think that group has kind of regressed on paper, and I don't know if the depth is a major issue there. I think, you know, they feel good about the five starters they have, but I don't know if they feel great about the backups beyond, you know, maybe the, the six-man, the swing tackle. So um, if they can't protect, you know, I think it's going to be tough no matter who the quarterback is. Yeah, I mean, UMass has been – Unable to, to put it lightly, uh, to get pressure on the quarterback, and we foresee that being a challenge again this year. So, I think at least for this one, your Rutgers is in probably pretty okay shape. But it's uh, it sounds as if you have you do or not you. I know you're I know you're a legitimate reporter, but <laughs> Rutgers does have a um, a seriously quality running back. Yes, that's the best position group on the team. You know, talk, Isaiah talk, Pacheco. Talk to us about, yeah, I talked to us about yeah, that. Yeah, Raheem Blackshear, you know, it, kind of your t- prototypical modern, you know, scat back. You know, Isaiah Pacheco is a guy with a big, a solid freshman year. I think people start to break out of him. Uh, Aaron Young, whose brother Avery I mentioned earlier, 
is kind of the star cornerback or budding star cornerback. Um, he's a true freshman who I think is really impressed. He's going to play a role. Uh, kid, I, Elijah Barnwell had a really strong summer. I think he'll find a role there. So they've got three or four running backs that they can kind of they feel comfortable rolling with. I think they're going to try to run the ball. I think if they had their way, they would run the ball 60% of the time, establish the run. But I think it's going to come back to can an offensive line create holes for them? And when they do throw the ball, can they keep the chains moving, protect the football, and kind of allow the run game to, f- to feed into it that? So, so that strikes me as the key to the game. I mean, UMass is – kind of weak up front or, or at least we're led to believe as much and they were just just crushed last year as a result of the lack of depth there and it's funny because you look at the numbers and you're like how could UMass have good corners they gave up like 63 mm-hmm. points on multiple occasions and it's like because they got no pressure on the quarterback you could put Ty Law back there it doesn't matter you know yeah um so I think that if we're doing predictions um Rutgers will probably you know, churn up 325 yards on the ground and almost doesn't matter what they do through the air. And I think they probably win like 31 to to 14 to 10, something like that. Um, You got a prediction? Yeah, I think in the paper I picked 24-10 Rutgers. I just... That's giving the UMass defense a lot of credit. Yeah, no, I mean, I I, I kind of landed on that score. It seemed a little low because I, I, just, I think this game is going to be somewhat competitive for some reason. I just, I wasn't, you know, the way, Ash just seemed too tight at his press conference. And I, and I always wonder, you know, because I've always been a firm believer that, you know, kind of head coaches talk to their teams through the media and the media kind of views their head, you know, report teams view their head coach and their, their kind of mood through the media. And I, I just... Again, like I understand, you can't take an opponent lightly, but it just seemed to me that there should be, a, even if you're one and eleven, even if you're Rutgers, a little bit more kind of air of confidence and swagger uh, playing UMass. So, twenty-four uh, ten seemed a little low to me. Um, maybe like a thirty-one seventeen game. I, I just, my whole thing was, I just don't know how many points UMass will score. You know, given the quarterback situation, given it's the first time you're in, you're in a new offense. Um, but I just think it's a game where. And I also wonder if how how ambitious Rutgers is going to get. I mean, I could see them just trying to run, run, run and get out of there, just get the win, get it over with. So I, I picked 24-10. Um, I could see it being, you know, 27-13, you know, 31-17, something like that. But I do think UMass will quit itself well in the, in the end. And, and you're right about what you said before, I think, completely right about the idea that if Rutgers struggles early and Walt, Walt Bell, I mean, I, look, we don't know anything about what Walt Bell is going to do. We have some indication that, you know, he wants to move really quickly and get a ton of snaps in, but then naming Randall West as quarterback sort of threw everyone for a loop. We He's done a very good job, however, at least, you know, I mean, and I'm, I'm a pretty skeptical guy. I can see through bullshit. I feel like pretty, pretty well. He's done a very good job of Instill, you know, everybody says, "Oh, the culture's improved," and blah 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 blah. And he's always everywhere says that. But the the Mark Whipple, his predecessor, in many ways was actually and remains a very interesting tactician. Um, but you know, kind of a stubborn guy. He was in his early sixties. The game hadn't passed him by from a 
entirely from a tactical standpoint, but in terms of like building a culture and sort of doing the some of the gimmickry mm-hmm. that you know you got to do. He just he was over it. I mean, we, we, we joked that like every press conference with him, it felt like he had taken a couple Xanax because there was just a passivity to it, a sort of like resignation that like, ah, it is what it is. And, you know, the kids will bell has like these kids just moving with a different energy. And there's like a little bit of an edge and you can suss out what the kids are saying in the in the. Um, in the papers where it's just a little more specific when they talk about like the things he's doing to improve the culture. And I do think Jersey, a lot of Jersey kids on that roster, a lot of UMass fans will be in there. Randall West coming home, Brito coming home. If Rutgers is not, it doesn't, doesn't score early and and they don't score one or, you know, at least 10 points in the first quarter, even it could get very dicey, and I think UMass is playing with house money at that point. So I think we're going to know more or less the outcome or, or the, the type of game this yeah, will be that. With, within the first 10 minutes of the football game. I agree with that. I mean, look, like culture's great. Uh, if, if UMass is going to play Alabama or Clemson, I'd be like, eh, culture's not going to get you Doesn't matter. Far. Doesn't matter. But this, this game, don't really know what the home crowd's going to look like. Rutgers is 111. Don't know how improved this team is. It just seems to me like it, it could be a run-of-the-mill like blowout, but it also could get really interesting just because it seems like there's a lot of elements at play that all could come together to make something kind of uh, kind of interesting and contentious and down to the wire. All right, James, we are having a uh, pretty uh, robust UMass Twitter Twitter tailgate that you're invited to attend. I'm sure you'll be working the game, but if you want to stop by, slide in the DMs. Okay, and, you uh, we'll it. have you. I'll be walking around. All right. No beer, but I'll, I might stop in and say hi. No problem. No problem. Uh, don't. No. No uh, writing while. No drink. Writing yeah. while drinking. I get it. No. Um, and thanks so much again for doing this. We'd we'd love it if you you know tell your people to to listen to us and. Uh, oh and yeah, definitely. We'll definitely. I'll, I'll retweet it. What, be up tomorrow or. Uh, Benny, you think it'll be up tomorrow? Yeah, it, sh- it should be up tomorrow morning. I'm gonna get up a little bit early. Awesome. Try to get Sounds good. All right, beautiful. Yeah, Thanks again tag for doing me on, I'll, I'll retweet. You got it, guys. Thank you. All right, take care, man. Yep, you do fine. Once again, tonight's show is brought to you by Five College Movers. Now, our listeners are in Boston, New York, D.C., the West Coast, beyond. But a lot of them are in the Western Massachusetts area. And people move from Western Mass to all sorts of other places or from all sorts of other places back to Western Mass. Or maybe you just want to, like, go up to a game and bring a bunch of shit and set up a really elaborate tailgate. I bet you they'd take care of you on that, too. Five College Movers, fivecollegemovers.com, stress-free moving, friends of the show, friends of UMass Athletics. You know the drill. If you're moving, go to them. Tell them we sent you. Dependable, trustworthy, bunch of experience, bunch of years in the biz. Check them out. All right, mailbag time. I presume there will be some football and basketball questions and who knows what else. Gaber205, who will be at the game on Friday, a stalwart friend of the program, asks, what's the maroon pants situation on Friday? So I have been toying with this idea because I get superstitious and I think a lot about sartorial dynamics for big games as a fan. And 
I want to rock the maroon pants, but it's supposed to be like 83 and with a low of like 68, 69. Nice on Friday. So pants is a is a hard one. I mean, it's just a, it's hard to justify. I may do it, but that would require me to rock like a white or gray UMass tee, which I kind of lack. Most of my UMass gear is maroon, and you can't do maroon on maroon. I mean, it's just just a fashion faux pas. Uh, you know, you're you're close enough to New York that 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 you just can't you can't get away with that. It's it's inexcusable. Um, so. And I believe I just learned that I, I left my UMass football T-shirt at home. Um, and my dad was rocking it the other day at a block party, he told me. So can, shout can out I to I just him. pose a, a theoretical question? Sure, absolutely. Maroon shorts. So I don't own maroon shorts. I'm toying with the possibility of purchasing some. I have, at this point, less than 48 hours to do so. I have a small child. Um, I have a full-time job and fanatical as I am about UMass athletics, the prospect of finding an adequate and fashion forward, respectable pair of maroon shorts in that time period is unlikely. Furthermore, we are at the tail end of summer, um, and, uh, it's just going to be difficult to find them and you're not going to be uh, wearing them again for presumably a long time. I like the idea if somebody has a pair that's sort of, you know, lingering around and are unworn, let me know. My waist is uh, fairly small. Uh, do let me know. But, you know, actually, Bennett, the old saying uh, that you can only wear white pants between uh, Memorial Day and Labor Day would seem to apply here. It would be an aggressive move if I rocked a pair of white jeans. I confess I have one pair of sort of cream colored jeans that I don't quite feel uh, kind of um, cool enough to wear. I, just, I mean, I just don't quite have the edge. I have some edge, but I don't quite have that uh, alpha dynamism to wear white pants to a Rutgers tailgate. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm tempted to, but I don't even know where the pair of pants is to begin with. So that was a sort of an irrelevant aside. But yeah, I like the idea. I don't know if I can pull it off. I may, I will say this, I may rock the maroon pants because they're, you know, they're khakis, minor khakis, kind of roll, roll it up a little bit, you know, show a little ankle um, as one is want to do. And uh, want to do, want to do. Uh, and uh, then sport like a, the move might be to sport like a, a, a white, crisp collared uh, UMass emblazoned tee, uh, excuse me, collared shirt. I don't own that item of clothing, may hit up some sources in the athletic department. Guys, if you're listening, you know, uh, if you want me to sort of subtly promote you on the show, I'm not going it, to, it's look, it's, it's, this is quid pro quo shit here. You throw me a bone, I throw you a bone. So if you have any lingering, holler at your boy, slide in the DMs, and uh, we can make arrangements. I'll be arriving in New Brunswick around 5 p.m. Uh, and I'll get at least, you know, I'm hoping to get at least an hour and a half, two hours of tailgating, and I won't be doing an all-day affair. I, I do have to uh, I do have to punch the clock. Um, 
so those are my thoughts on uh, on wardrobe stuff. I, I've also thought about this in terms of the visuals of collegiate athletics, where you see the color of the school of the road fan base. Like if you go watch an SEC game, it'll be like at Georgia, and they'll be playing like uh, let's say. I don't know, they're playing like uh, Tennessee. You'll just see like the hint of orange in the corner. But if because Rutgers is red, like I don't know if there's enough of a juxtaposition between maroon and red in the in the stadium such that it, it makes a difference for us to be wearing maroon. I also frankly don't know if UMass has a, a sizable enough traveling fan base where it would matter. But if you go white, then nobody knows if that's UMass or Rutgers because it's kind of like, well, Rutgers is red and white. So I'm kind of leaning maroon at this point. Um, maybe maybe white on top. Bennett, you got thoughts on this? Uh, well, yes. As the as the fashionable member of the podcast uh, here in my basketball shorts and Macho Man Randy Savage t-shirt, I must say uh, I do think maroon shirt would be preferable, but if you're wearing the maroon pants, you cannot wear a maroon shirt. Right. So are you saying, I mean, in effect, are, I don't own that many pairs of shorts anymore. That's one of the depressing things about adulthood is like you go to work, you wear pants and I, I work like a little bit late. Normally I work like a little bit later now. So like when I get home, like that's it. That's like, that's the game. Like I, I just get out of my pants and like, that's it. So it's kind of like, I, I may, I may just like get a nice pair of like khaki shorts to end the summer. There's probably some sales somewhere and just throw that on with the, I, I got to think about this. I really got to think about this because most of my nice UMass merch is maroon. And there's a possibility I could go with the basketball jersey. I have a Chaz Williams, but it's a little too big. It kind of, you know, I mean, let's, I gotta, I'm going to think this through. And this will, this will dominate the discussion, I hope, on UMass Twitter over the next um, 36 hours. Okay. Um, Jake Barnes, UM, says, how many touchdown passes does King West throw on Friday? I'm going to say he throws one. Honestly, if I'm being totally candid, the sort of uh, perpetually deflated, cynical UMass fan side of me that, you know, it's not easy to shed after many, many years of hardships. Thinks he plays one series and we don't see him again. I think there's a 35, a 30% chance of that happening. I'm not saying it's likely. Uh, that said, Rutgers has a really good secondary. Um, I could see him run for a touchdown pass. So if I was setting the over-under, I might say like 0.5. But if I set it at touchdowns I would set it at one I think he gets a touchdown whether he throws it or runs it I'm not sure Michael Bergman who is if I'm not mistaken an undergraduate as is Jake Barnes I think both of them are like uh they're, they're both friends of the show and they're both um they're both um militia. they're both militia guys yeah so and by militia guys we mean the it's sort of funny that they changed the name of the student fan group from Mullins Militia to just Militia because when you think of a militia, particularly in this political climate, you really basically think of like hardcore Second Amendment absolutists. Big fans, big fans of two way. That's that's where I was going. Yeah. Yeah, like a lot of hashtag two A, 
and uh, a lot of hashtag MAGA, you know, with, with people who associate with militias. So shouts to them. But when you are walking around the UMass, the campus in Amherst and you, and you say, yeah, we're part of the militia. I'm just not sure how that plays to the, uh, the, the informed politically active student who is not engaged in the athletic program. Um, that's, you know, that's a branding exercise and, you know, I leave it to the, uh, the fine folks in the, uh, Eisenberg school to, to, uh, figure that out. But just my two cents. Um, Anyway, Michael asks, hard seltzer, question mark, and then thumbs up or thumbs down. So there's been a lot of chatter about hard seltzer. Uh, I confess uh, it's been one of those things along with TikTok that for 33 going on 34 years old, yours truly has been a little bit hard for me to get my head around. Then as I was raising questions about it on Twitter, the great... uh, Billy D. Mullins, who will be at the tailgate uh, and a longtime friend of the show and actually a friend IRL, that's in real life for the, uh, for the, uh, the Gen Xers uh, and boomers listening to the program. Uh, he said it's basically Zima, which was like a 90s era before my time, but I remember as a kid, 90s era, same thing. Look, if it tastes good, I'll drink it. I've discussed it on this show at some length. Uh, I think Somebody asked, like, what am I drinking at a tailgate on the last episode? I don't have that hang up about, oh, like it's a girly drink or whatever. No, I'm comfortable in my skin and well, at least with parts of it and uh, parts of myself and drinking is one of them. If it tastes good, it doesn't have to be terribly sophisticated or, or cool or, or whatever. If it's some undergrad, you know, or, or you know, high school drink and it tastes good. I don't really care. I mean, you know, uh, so go for it. You know, I mean, again, with drinking, it's like, don't be an asshole. Don't throw shit. Don't burn shit. And just sit, don't fight for no reason. And just sit back and fucking do your thing. I don't care what's in your hand. And I know, and I've said it before, you know, the, the beer snobs in the show are going to take issue with that. And kudos to them if that's something they're passionate about and they know a great deal about those things. I, I respect uh, the value of expertise in a, in a democratic society, but uh, that's not a realm in which I'm an expert, nor do I particularly care to enforce uh, arbitrary rules of civility. So, Michael, thumbs up. Uh, mayor of New Mass, who is actually... Uh, RP Minuteman 314. I don't know where the 314 comes. Maybe he's born on March 14th because 314 is actually the uh, area code for St. Louis. Just FYI. He says, do you feel threatened by the resurgence of the Plant the Flag podcast, more specifically Burnham J? So you get two questions there. He's referring to Jay Burnham, the uh, voice of the Minutemen who has done an outstanding job and is friend of this podcast who has appeared on the show. Um, and I really like him. He's really good at his job. And I wouldn't say that if I didn't feel it, I would just be like, I just wouldn't talk about it, but he's really good at his job. He's a very good play by play guy. He's funny. He's engaging. He knows how to do the corny shit without being like gratuitous and, and like, you know, too, uh, uh, corporate speaky, um, very good at his job. And I'm, was thrilled that they hired him as director of broadcasting. Actually disappointed that he's not going to be the TV guys. I'll be candid. I, I, I'm not blown away by that crew. Um, we don't have to get into specifics, but I just 
you know, whatever it is what it is. So maybe I'll pull the uh, old school move of like <laughs> turning Jay Burnham up on the radio while, uh, while uh, watching on TV. That's like, that's the real power move for like a certain breed of kind of engaged nerdy fan. But anyway, they launched a, or they relaunched the plant the flag podcast, which uh, at least in the past was Ryan Bamford's uh, short lived uh, venture into frankly, my realm. Uh, but uh, podcasting is a democratic medium. I think everybody is invited. Um, I obviously have a massive head start and a, an engaged fan base. Uh, I'm not threatened by them at all to answer the question. Um, I will be frankly um, surprised if they actually stick to a real schedule this year. I mean, they came out hard out of the gates last time. They got, you know, Marty Meehan, the president of the UMass system. And I think they got Marcus Canby and great, but uh, you know, you shot your load, guys. Like, sorry, maybe, maybe that's a little, it's a little too. You know, it was, it was, it was you, you pretty, it was a little premature. Is, is all I'm trying to say. Like, if you're going to do it, do it. Um, you know, I feel very comfortable with uh, the direction of this program, and I, and I, I think uh, the more UMass podcasts, the merrier. I would give pretty much any UMass podcast um, a listen at least once, and I will likely listen to that one. I think in all seriousness um, that it's challenging for, I mean, basically what you're doing in that context. And, and, I, and, I, and by the way, I, I really do respect uh, Alan Pandiani and, and everyone over there for, at UMass Athletics for, for moving forward, you know, into the podcasting sort of frontier. I think it's a great space to be in as the uh, sort of corporate types would say. It's a, it's a great space. This is just a fantastic space right now. It's really hot. But like it is, and I give them immense credit for, you know, moving forward with that. I do worry a little bit, by the way, aside that like some of the older UMass fans in Western Mass, I just I just refuse to believe that they're going to be like logging on to, to SoundCloud or whatever to like listen. So I, I'm a little I, I, I'm a mildly concerned that that subset of the audience may be impacted adversely by this. But in general, you know, kudos to them for moving into that. That being said, I think just more broadly as someone who thinks about uh, kind of podcasting as a medium and, 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 and media more broadly, I think it's challenging for any sponsored content or branded content, as they say in the media business to, to be that good. I mean, it, it's just because the reality is when you're a brand and UMass Athletics is a brand, and I mean a brand that has to generate revenue and like maintain a posture of respectability, which I don't have to do on this show. Um, it's hard to do a good podcast because the whole point of a podcast is, or, or what I think is good about podcasting as, as a, just a, a medium is that it's an intimate medium. It's uh, very, it lends itself to authenticity. You can kind of, you know, people can get to know you beyond, you know, the, the kind of official gatekeeping of a, of a formal brand. Um, and so it just allows a certain level of uh, your full, like, you know, self to shine through and you don't have to, uh, it's a little more forgiving than other mediums. People kind of get to know you and they're, they're like, I mean, I've had people tell me like, no, don't get a nice mic because like, that's what makes a show, you know, like what it is. And like, you know, it's like, you just don't get that with the kind of, not to say we don't need a new mic. I'm just, I'm just pointing out that uh, like, when 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 a when branded con, branded content is just harder to do, 
I think UMass will do it. Jay Burnham is as good as anyone I've seen um, in the collegiate sports landscape and really around sports in general to do that kind of like to tow the company line while not being a complete cornball. And that's a real skill and it's hard. So I, I, I give him immense amount of credit for that. And I'm definitely excited to listen. Um, but in general, like, and this is not unique to UMass athletics, it's just hard to get behind formal brands when they enter like the kind of more creative media space. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how they, how they do it and navigate that. I think they can be uh, a little looser than say a bank or, you know, even a pro team would be, but I, I even find it kind of annoying sometimes when like pro teams or like Popeye's or Wendy's or whatever become like human. I think it's like a weird response to uh, this, is a much more philosophical uh, discussion. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's the, what I was just going to, I was just going to add to this point is when a, when a pro team particularly, and I, I, I love Jay. I think Jay will do an awesome job. We, we've talked a few times about different ways to, that we, you can grab audio. We can connect with people remotely, just some, some tips going back and forth. Um, and I hope they do the best, but when team podcasts get like bad, it gets almost propagandic. So like I it, listen, it's me. So I get to talk about the white Pro- propaganda, propagandic or propagandist. Carry on. I would say propagandic. I'm not. I'm not sure. I uh, think it's propaganda. Like, okay, keep going. Like the the there's a podcast that's run by NBC Sports Chicago, which is partially owned by the owner of the White Sox, and that podcast gets so far the other way about how great everything is and how yeah. it comes off is so fake and so tough. And that's kind of the, I think the challenge you get with a lot of team podcasts and, and brand podcasts. I, I think Jay's going to do an incredible job. I'm definitely going to be listening in, but that's just, it's always a concern when you get that kind of podcast going. Yeah. I mean, there's an old story. I, I, it might be in Marty Dobrow's book about the rise of UMass basketball. And this goes way back. Well, I mean, this is in the early nineties. And I don't, I don't remember. I actually need to get him on the show because George Miller, who um, was, he was actually, he might still be the um, public address announcer at some games at the Mullen Center. But for years in the early 90s, he was the play-by-play man for UMass. And it was unclear to me if he was owned, uh, if, if, if his um, contract was paid for by UMass Athletics or if it was independent at that time where like WHMP in Northampton, I think, might have had it. And I guess he asked a tough question and pushed back on Calipari. And Calipari was a young and, you know, I love Cal, but I think he was at, at the time he was younger and a little, you know, there's a little braggadocio and a little vindictive. And I think he like was basically like, fuck you, you know, and I don't know how the whole story went, but this is a, the, the point is, you know, and basically was like, don't ask that question. Like, but the point is like, it's really hard to do anything resembling kind of hard hitting, Authentic, or even just like authentic journalism or, or, or journalism light content, you know, content is like an over, another overused sort of term. But um, if anyone can do it, it's Jay. And I think UMass, the good thing is like they're, they're not so big that they can't afford to take some risks and try some things. And I will say right now as someone who, you know, among several others who helps uh, 
I, I hope in my some little way drive the perception of how the pro athletic program is doing. Um, I, I will be very forgiving of their mistakes at the outset, because I think that to do these things well, you have to try some things, you have to take some risks. And, and, and again, I don't want them to go too far the other way where they're like, because that's bad too, right? When people like try, try and, uh, and like, be like too edgy to offset the perception that they're not able to be edgy, right? Like that's annoying too. Just be yourself, interview people, do well, and like, you know, make good audio. And uh, I'll, I, I wish you the best and I'm excited to hear it. I will continue, of course, to uh, mock it relentlessly um, just because it's fun to maintain a um, kind of uh, a rivalry of sorts uh, with the kind of, you know, and it, it's fun to play the outsider a little bit and like mix it up. And look, I realize we have a little more freedom to say things. They have uh, the brand, you know, cachet that we don't. So you know, there, there's, there's different ways to do this. And, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited. And I think the more entrance in the kind of UMass athletics media sphere is awesome. The reality is, I mean, like at the end of the day, until the football or basketball team breaks through nationally, we're still by and large talking to ourselves by ourselves. I mean, the same sphere of anywhere from 500 to 1500 people who constantly give a shit about this day in day out. So we're kind of deluding ourselves if, if, you know, we think otherwise, but I think the goal for both our show and that one is to at least periodically break out of that, you know, relatively small sphere of diehards while not abandoning uh, a style of, of content that plays to the diehards. And the reality is, by the way, when you create, you know, content that uh, plays to the diehards, you know, most experts in, in media now, and it's kind of just intuitively like obvious, right? It's not about how many clicks or hits or downloads you get. It's about how engaged your audience is. So it's much better to have a hundred people willing to pay you ten dollars than to have a thousand people who you know turn you on on a radio dial because there's nothing else on and the chant that channel came in right like but who will forget about you thirty seconds later? And maybe I'm just telling myself that because I think that the people who support the show are particularly um, engaged and fun and cool and like really have been tremendously supportive. Shout out to our great sponsor, of course, Five College Movers, uh, fivecollegemovers.com, friends of the show, friends of the program. And, um, and yeah, so that's my, that's my take. Uh, and Bennett, I mean, you're in the more traditional media landscape, although it's funny because serious, you know, as recently as 10 or 15 years ago, they were like the upstart entrant in, in, in the audio realm. I'm curious, like, is that the, perception there that like engagement matters more than like raw numbers um yeah i think i think to a point i we we don't really it's tough to say like we don't share the numbers too often of viewership uh but yeah i think it's definitely like we know just from engagement at fantasy august we're like one of the most listened to and most responded to channels because it's fantasy football season Right. So, like, I think it definitely is important. I don't know if it's the only thing that matters. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's like also it's a different model because, like, you're still ad funded, like, entirely, I think. Right. No, no, you're not ad funded at all. Excuse me. You're 
uh, subscription model. Say, so it's, it's like it's. I think it's a lot more about driving people to to get the subscription. But that, but that is actually that's exactly my point, right? Like Howard Stern, who really launched Sirius. I mean, made it what it is. He was bringing five million diehards. Shout out to Zach as God, friend of the show, who's a huge Stern guy, as my. Um, who you know, he was like, "Fuck it, I don't need to be on terrestrial. I don't need to." It's like everybody. I have a million, two million, three million, four million fans who will follow me here and pay a hundred bucks a year, including my dad, by the way, who, if you know him, you'd be like, what? He's a Stern fan. That's how good Stern is. If you don't understand him, you don't understand audio. You don't understand radio and you need to start listening to him. Uh, he's one of the most misunderstood people by people who don't listen to him. Best to ever do it. Uh, anyway, keep going. But yeah, so anyway, Sirius is like the, the precursor to podcasting in that sense where like, yeah, if you like, like someone, you're going to pay for them. You're not going to rely on ads. So like serious is you can, you can measure your engagement quite easily. It's just like how many subscribers do we have? Like end of, end of discussion. Um, right. I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. I guess now, I, I guess now it's a little different though. Cause like now cars come with it. So it's like, it's almost de facto terrestrial radio, right? If, if a car comes with it already, well, it, it doesn't come with it permanent. It comes with, you know, a free trial, and then you hope you can hook them kind of thing. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But it still must be hard there to, to know, like, well, did you sign up because you want to listen to Howard, or did you sign up because you want to listen to Fantasy? You know, like, that's an interesting – I don't know how yeah, you guys do that. I don't work on that side. I'd, lo- I'd love to know if they ask, like, what channels are you listening to that's keeping you here kind of thing. And like, I think that's – that data, and I'm making this up as a decidedly non-quantitative person, but I, I'm – I'm making it up a little, but like, I feel like a lot of that stuff, and I know it's true in podcasting, remains notoriously kind of amorphous. Nobody really knows. Like, they don't totally know. Even the greatest ex, they don't know if you're going to Sirius to listen to Fantasy or Howard. Like, it's just tough to, 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 to you know, even in, in this day and age. Now, if I'm wrong on any of this and people are in the industry, please hit us up because I'm happy to, to be corrected. All right, let's get on. <laughs> That was a long fucking conversation. Um, do you think well, Zach is God? Speaking of Zach is God, says, do you think McCall is more excited or more nervous for this season? It's a really good question. Moving to basketball, which is interesting because Zach is like our resident football expert on the I show. Did, I did think he was going to be more excited or more nervous about Randall West starting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so well, it's funny because Zach was like, yeah, Randall West, like no, no chance. Um, so, I think oh, that's a really good question. I think I think probably more excited. And I know that maybe like doing Matt's bidding, but hear me out on this. I think when he got rid of more more than signing any players or even getting rid of any players, I think completely replacing his staff was a huge deal for his own psychological health and comfort, mostly comfort. Because I think when you're a head coach, I have a, a sneaking suspicion and I, I don't know, I'm not, I, I, I don't know what's in his mind, but there's a lot of rules about how often you can engage with players and like, you know, you have only 20 hours a week and blah, blah, blah. And the reality is like when you're not with them, you spend, as we all do, if we work you know, even a 40 hour job, 40 hour week job, 
but particularly in these kind of really intense uh, pressure cooker, you know, high, high, high elite college basketball and football jobs, you spend an inordinate amount of time with your staff. And when he came uh, in 2017, you know, that spring, he very hastily put together a, a staff that was based on, he brought one of his guys who was with him, who was one of his boys. And you need that. I think you need someone, you need the, it's like, you need the turtle in your crew to, 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 to uh, lift an entourage reference. I hate to, I hate to do that, but it, it, you, you get what I'm saying. You need the guy who you're just kind of comfortable with who like, not to say that his buddy Gash was not uh, a value add from a kind of tactics or recruiting standpoint, but first and foremost, I think he was like a mat guy. So you needed that. But then the other two guys he hired were kind of like, you know, he needed a guy who could recruit the Northeast. So he got Rasheen Davis and he needed a guy who kind of, uh, you know, had some mid Atlantic, some head coaching experience and, um, you know, it was a little bit older and maybe had some ties in, in the, the DMV, you know, DC, Maryland, Virginia area. And so he got Cliff Warren, but both those dudes were like, they weren't his guys. He hired them quickly cause they were available. And then I would imagine it probably becomes awkward like to have his guy gash there because it's like, you know, then it's like, you know, him and gash first, you know, who knows, but it's just like, that's like, it it was hastily put together as it had to be. Then they kind of overachieved that first season. And so you can't really can anyone because then it's like, well, what's going on in the program? And there's questions swirling around the program. Why would you? So, Having the ability to start that part of things over, forget the players now, forget all that, and to learn about what he needed in terms of who he was. And I'll be candid with you. I've, I've, uh, I think I mentioned on the show. I, I, I went, uh, I went, mentioned on Twitter. I went to the practice facility, and I've talked a little bit with Matt about some of these things. Um, and he doesn't say, you know, coaches are coaches, and they, you know, they have a way about about them in terms of how they present this stuff. But, you know. I get the hunch that um, that he learned. I mean, he said it in press in, in, in press coverage. Like he learned about, you know, he says like I learned a lot about myself over these two years. I think he learned a lot about the sort of personnel he needs to surround himself with. And if he didn't, well, <laughs> you know, he should have luck, or he's going to be soon. But I think he did. And I think when you uh, get guys around you and, and including one from his uh, support staff in, in, um, in uh, Lucius Jordan, um, who, who is promoted, you know, he, if he's promoting a guy like that, he's comfortable with him and he's comfortable. And so the bottom line is like, and you can just sort of see it in the way, like the, 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 the staff members are kind of engaging. Like, I think he's very comfortable with that. And I think that that is, that just gives you a comfort in terms of like, Okay, I can focus on what I what I know I'm good at, and I have guys now who can do the things that you know either I don't have the time to do or that aren't my you know go to skill set. So, and the Tony Bergeron thing, the fact that he has a loyalty of a lot of those kids anyway from elsewhere, I think helps. Um, so I think he's more excited. I think his concern and his um, his fear, if that was the question, is understandably the fact that this is a really hard schedule and there's not a whole lot of time. And unfortunately, because of what happened last season, 
he's in this weird spot where like we could very well see a very similar year to his first year where a young and pretty inexperienced group of kids um, plays incredibly hard and has a under 500 record, which would be exciting and cool. And yet people are like, that's the third year in a row, dude. And now there's a ton of pressure for year four. And so I think his anxiety is presumably a function of the fact that, you know, he's starting over, but it's year three. And so even though I think you'll see a much more enjoyable brand of basketball this year, I think for Matt, there's going to be a lingering uh, uh, angst that I think, you know, frankly, isn't terribly fair because, but it's the reality, right? I mean, I, I always said you have to get four years. I mean, because Kellogg, uh, you know, didn't break through until year four. And um, the, but the, the fact is, if you enter year four without a whole lot of positive momentum or encouraging signs in year three, and for what it's worth, I think there will be many, then it's like, you know, then it's what Rutgers is facing right now with their, um, with their football coach. You know, it's, it's that like, you fuck up you once, you know, you lose one game early and, and oh boy, you know, it, it, it can, it can, un, un, you know, it can roll downhill quick. So I think he's more excited, but I think, uh, you know, it, it's the, the, the nerves or the anxiety is, is, uh, is not far, uh, behind if, if that makes sense. Um, Sitch, the great Sitch. He said, did WB really agree to do the pot? Oh, Walt Belt, offseason. Okay, so first of all, he, he, his people from UMass reached out to Bennett and me uh, in like mid-June or like early June. And I was going to be in Western Mass for like 12 hours. I was going up to the Berkshires for like a family thing. And I just couldn't – and I had to leave for to go back to New York like that Sunday at like 9. So we just like couldn't make it work. And then they wanted to do it in person, and I couldn't get back to Western Mass this summer. So uh, they took a while to get to us, but, and, but I, I only fault myself because we were relentless in trying to get him on. And then they agreed, and they kind of gave us like one date. And then in fairness, like I felt bad for, being, for not being able to do that date because I kind of, you know – jumped the shark a little at first. I was like, Oh yeah, I think I can do that date. And of course I couldn't. And I shouldn't have said that. Um, but then I didn't, I was kind of embarrassed or whatever. And I didn't, I didn't follow up as, as, uh, as effectively as I, as I should have. Um, and so I, I don't hold it against Walt and, uh, I've been impressed by the, the way he's handled the media. Not that we're like the formal media, but that he's handled the media and kind of things, you know, like that around camp and I'm, I'm rooting for him and, uh, hopefully we'll get him on the show soon. Uh, then he says, also, has Hoops moved up a notch expectations-wise with a great performance in the Virgin Islands, sans a few key players, or just chill out, Sitch? <laughs> I love fucking Sitch. What a, what a great dude. He's, he's manning the tailgate, Jersey native. Uh, if, you're, if you're there and you haven't met him, you got to meet him. The guy travels more for UMass basketball than anyone in the country, and is just a first-rate fan, as I always say. I would be lying if I told you that the performances in the Virgin Islands uh, didn't didn't get me 
more excited. They did. They did. I don't care how bad the teams they played were. Kitwana Reimer, a, a one-time UMass, if not star, a, a, a probably was a third-team all-league guy at one point at center. And I know he's probably 37, 38 now. But he was the center on that team that <laughs> Trey Mitchell and uh, and Cy Chapman combined for like 20 of 30 shooting and like, you know, 40 points and 20 boards or whatever. Like, I, that excites me. I, I know it's not fair. And, and the game that they won like 113 to 45 or whatever, no, that means nothing. Like that that might as well have been uh, – like you just, it doesn't matter. And CJ Jackson, who I'm excited about, but by all accounts is uh, a little bit more of a project, very athletic, but it's going to take a little while to move along. He scored like 28 in that game. And you're just kind of like, I mean, what is it? You know, like what, you know, like when you see Trey Mitchell go for like 27 and 15 against a Canadian team that like is apparently from, you know, some people I've spoken with like low level D one type team and they win by 16. Like that's very encouraging. The game they won by 70 means nothing. I mean, that's just a fucking joke. Uh, The other game against the national team where they won by like 35, but gave up, it was like 125 to 88 or something like that. There were some things in that box score that stood out, but, you know, I don't know. The reality is they played without Carl Pierre and without DeJiri Baptiste, and I think Samba didn't really play either. So it was a great opportunity for those freshmen just to play anybody, and um, it's only going to help. And I think, again, it, it did once again give me – and all. It, it, for one thing, it, it showed that Cy Chapman, I think, could be really good. And that's going to be huge because you need another guy. I think you're, you can almost expect Trey Mitchell with his recruiting, you know, how highly touted he is. I think it's fair to say you're going to get 10, 12 out of him a night. You never know. Um, and you know you're going to get that from Carl. You need Samba or Keon or Cy Chapman to emerge. You know, one of the returnees, because, you know, you're going to get those nights where Weeks or, or, or Press and Santos, who are both good on the trip as well, are going to hit, you know, three threes and they're going to give you a great lift and they're going to be great on the press. Um, but you need like a, a, a legitimate third scoring option that can get buckets. And seeing Cy Chapman, who I think we all knew had the talent to break out, was very encouraging. There were a lot of encouraging signs. Uh, Sean East had some really nice games. Um Colton Mitchell. I mean, so look like, yeah, I, I don't care who they played. I got a little excited by it. And that's what fandom is. So, you know, if you don't like that, I don't know what to tell you. Gregory Ledger, or is it Legger from D.C., uh, the D.C. area, says, can you please have a huge headshot sign of King West at the game? Also, you need to get his dad on the pot at some point because I'm guessing he is full of wisdom that we should all hear. I can't put together a headshot on short notice. I'm not artistically dynamic enough. Um, I hope someone can. And uh, I would love to get the old man on the show. Maybe I'll bring a recorder and try to like get some audio from the uh, tailgate. That's actually, I don't know why I hadn't thought of that. Jeff Piantadosi says, we all love West, but will he have true success this week to keep the starting role? 
I sort of vaguely alluded to that in the uh, at the outset of the show in the intro. And if I'm being totally honest, I don't even want to entertain it. I don't even want to entertain it at this point. Like, I know that's a cop-out. It is a cop-out, but it's my show. And once in a while, you got to draw a line. I don't want to entertain it. Like, as I said, he might play one series. I don't care. The whole story is a success. Of course, that, like, fantastical, like, in the literal, like, fantasy-like sense you know, of my brain imagines Randall West, you know, fucking winning the Heisman Trophy, right? Like, I, I, my, my, my brain can go to some pretty elevated, you know, uh, states when it comes to, like, the, the Randall West story. And it's like, I'm happy to continue putting out that propaganda in the world because, like, it's just, like, good mojo. But, you know... I'm not an idiot. I wasn't born yesterday. I mean, I'm an idiot in some senses. I mean, I'm an, I'm an idiot for investing as much time as I do in thinking about things like, uh, you know, uh, the long, strange journey of Randall West. But like, I, you know, I, I know how the world works. And I know that, you know, Walt Bell's got to eventually win some football games and that playing the guy he brought in who has another year of eligibility or two, potentially, if I'm not mistaken, in Brito. You know that you know that, that's a that's a reality. Nick Baker, Nick Baker, sixty three says, "What positives can be taken out of the trip to Virgin Islands?" So actually, I just realized I just answered that from Sitch, so I'm not going to answer it again because we've also had an endlessly long show. Um, that's going to do it, and this has been a good one. I hope you um, listen to it before the game at Rutgers. I hope you come to the game at Rutgers. Uh, definitely let me know if you're going. I would love to say hello to people. And uh, and thanks, uh, special thanks to friend of the pod, Eric Friedlander, another good follow on Twitter, who was the one who suggested we have James Cratch on tonight, who I thought was one of the better the better guests we've had in the show. Um, and I really enjoyed everything he had to say. So I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Thanks again to Five College Movers uh, for all their support and everything they've been doing to, to help us. I, I can't thank them enough. And by the way, check out the... Uh, Five College Movers branded UMass uh, moving truck that they bring to all the games. It's it's really cool looking. It's on their Twitter account. And uh, I think some of their guys will be at the tailgate as well. So say hello to them if you're around. Uh, as Cal would always say, love you guys. We're out. <laughs>